you. So, Rahab lied. Rahab lied. And as a result of Rahab lying, the, uh, the spies escaped and lived to tell the tale and went back and gave their report. A battle plan was formulated. Jericho fell and the conquest began. Um, <clears throat> but it does raise the question, what do we do with the fact that Rahab used deceit, dishonesty, uh, as part of that help that she gave to the spies. So <clears throat> let me read what I've written up on this thing and then um, open up for questions and discussion. Rahab lied to protect, um, uh, to protect the Israelites from being killed by soldiers in Jericho. She didn't lie for the sake of convenience. She lied to save lives. That's how many people look at it. Okay, the question is, is it, everly, is it ever morally permissible to tell a lie? On one end of the spectrum, you have philosophers like Immanuel Kant, who would say, no, never under any circumstance is it okay to lie. According to Kant, to lie would be to act in a way that is less than rational. It's irrational to lie, according to him. And for Kant, uh, rationality was kind of the greatest good. Um, he said lying is to treat others as a means to an end instead of treating people as the end. As, as he said, it's, he believes it to be undignified. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, from, from Kant, who said, no, no way, no circumstance, no how. On the other end of the spectrum are um, <clears throat> moral relativists, um, who would argue that lying is morally permissible at any time and in any situation where telling the truth is going to get you hurt or get you in trouble or be inconvenient in some way. Uh, they would say you don't really have a moral imperative to follow. Everything is relative. So those are kind of the two poles there. <clears throat> so what do Christians think? You add God to the mix. You add faith to the mix. And it would seem like we would probably want to be more on the side of, of, of Kant and say, no, 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 you should never lie. In the Gospel of John, we learn that Jesus was full of grace and truth. If God is truth, we should be people of truth. First Corinthians says love rejoices in the truth. And we know that Satan himself is described as the father of lies. Who would want to align with him? So it would seem to be an open and shut case then that the Christian should not lie. But Exodus chapter 1, Hebrew midwives lied to Pharaoh, Shipra and Puah. Why couldn't they be named Jane and Beth? You know, I don't know. But uh, Shipra and Puah were ordered by the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, kill the boys when they're born. And they said, they disobeyed this. And when asked about it, they said, these Hebrew women are strong. <laughs> They're having these babies before we even get there. Which maybe wasn't entirely true, but wasn't entirely false either. And it said God dealt with them kindly and allowed them to have families of their own. I uh, went through some other examples, Southern abolitionists deceiving slave owners along the um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and we'll talk about Bonhoeffer in a moment, 
practicing deception in plots to assassinate Hitler, um, people lying to the, uh, the, the Gestapo to protect uh, Jews that were being hidden in their home. Anne Frank's family is an example. So what do we do with this? Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself has given an example. He wrote about it uh, because he was actually put in a concentration camp, was eventually hung um, for his part in assassination attempts against Hitler and uh, using deception to help those things out. And yet he was a pastor and a theologian uh, who wrote probably one of, the, one of the best works of discipleship ever, The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, Bonhoeffer writes that God's standard of truth entails more than merely not lying. So let's see what let's let's unpack that and see how how Bonhoeffer gets there. One of the things he suggests for us to consider is that there is a difference between the truth and the facts. That truth and facts are not always the same thing. And he makes a differentiation between the two. What he means by that is that telling the truth does not mean that one has to give away all of the facts with no sense of discernment or propriety. It's kind of like the Hebrew midwives. In fact, that's a case in point. The case in point is that one commentator said that the Hebrew midwives is a good example because the midwives may have attempted to avoid answering Pharaoh's question directly, and therefore they, com they commented on what was true without giving all of the details. So they said, the women are having the babies before we get there. Well, was that the whole truth? I don't know, I wasn't there. But there was truth in it, but it wasn't every single fact. Pharaoh didn't need to know every single fact. What would Pharaoh have done with all of the facts? Well, we, we know what Pharaoh would have done. Um, another commentator says that deception is an important strategy in war or when innocent lives are in danger. And so this is where we kind of get into the... Uh, the, 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 the get beyond the candy coating into the, 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 the heart of this. Bonhoeffer believed that there are situations where it is not only morally permissible to lie, but that obedience to God requires the person to lie. I'm, I'm giving you what Bonhoeffer says. Um, I, haven't, I haven't gone into what I think yet. Um, <clears throat> and so he lied involving himself in deception after deception in, as he conspired against Hitler and the Nazis during World War II. A lot of people agree that Bonhoeffer was right to lie given the circumstances because many of his acts of deception uh, saved the lives of, of, of Jews and prisoners of war, etc. If we take an example that's maybe per, very personal, <clears throat> Example kind of like I gave Sunday where somebody runs to your house, they've been beaten up by, their, by an abusive spouse, you take them in, the abusive spouse comes, knocks on your door, beats on your door, are they here? What do you tell them? You know, I'd like to think that I would say, yeah, and to get to her, you're going to have to go through me, buddy. <laughs> You know, that's what I'd like to think. 
what I say, it's none of your business, which is kind of an answer. Um, I'm not at liberty to say, which is an answer. No. It's not here, which is an answer. What do you do? And that's, that's kind of where it gets into it. There's, I think, I think it's safe to say that there's an intuition in us, maybe a tinge in us that would say, well, maybe it is morally permissible if it's to protect or save an innocent life. That might be when we would make a justification for it. Um, Bonhoeffer and others kind of appeal to wartime, life and death type of ethics as, as a justification for it. Um, but then how do, we, how do we make those ethical calls? Does that make us a moral relativist, just not as far over here as the ones who would say you can lie any time, but does it put us left of that center line? Maybe. Here's where I land on it. Um, I, I appeal to a philosophical concept called the hierarchy of values. The hierarchy of values. And so, <clears throat> telling the truth is of an extremely high value. Valued above pretty much everything else. We should tell the truth. We should strive to tell the truth. Telling the truth should be what we cherish and value more than almost anything in life. But in that hierarchy of values, there may be a value at times that overtakes the value to tell the truth in a certain context. And if that higher value is the protection or saving of, of another person's life, what value is going to take a higher role? Probably the saving of a life. Probably. Maybe. And here's one of the ways that I think we can uh, n determine that. Kind of the how do you get there. Um, if a member of the Gestapo is beating on the door of the home of Miep Gase, um, who wrote, wrote about protecting Anne Frank's family and wants to know, do you, do you have Jews in your house? There is truth to be told. There are facts that are there. The question is, does that member of the Gestapo deserve to be entrusted with the truth? What will they do with the truth? Are they... Are they in a position to adequately and appropriately bear the weight of the truth? What Bonhoeffer goes into is that truth has a value. Truth has a weight to it. And in conveying truth to another person, part of the valuing process is, are they in a position to treat the value of this truth in a valuable way? in a way that lives up to its value? Will they mistreat this truth? Will they fold under the weight of this truth? Um, how, will, how, were they, how will they steward the value of this truth? Will they be a good steward of it, or will they abuse it? Will they exploit it? 
Will they exploit someone because of it? Are they entitled to that truth when they demand it? Or is there a higher value that disqualifies them from receiving the truth they demand? In Bonhoeffer's case, for him at least, there was the higher value of saving innocent lives. And so he said it was morally permissible to use deception because that outweighed the the high value of telling the truth. Um, So for Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer believed he was following God's call um, for the well-being of all. And so it begs the question, is the whole truth something that at times needs to be on a need-to-know basis? Depending on what is the person demanding it going to do with it? Um, If they're going to do something destructive with it, if they're going to do something horrendous with it, then do they deserve the whole truth? And if they don't, what facts can they be given that may accomplish some satisfaction on their end, but doesn't create danger to someone that's being protected or a life that needs to be spared? I didn't say it would be easy to navigate this. Um, But I think where I land on it is unless there is a dire situation to where the saving and protecting of innocent human life outweighs the value of telling the truth, other than that very, very rare occasion, truth-telling needs to be what we hold as our highest value. But personally, I hold... I hold open that in a fallen world, there may, there, there may be times when the value of a human life outweighs the value of telling the truth in the moment. That's where I land on it. But I want to hear what you think, um, what you say, how, how, you're, how, how, how you navigate it, and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Versus it very rarely is it going to be because I genuinely am so much more concerned about somebody else. That's right. That's why I choose to lie over telling the truth. I would say 99.999 times it's to protect myself. Yeah. Because, you know, I would like nothing better than to have stood up here in front of you and said, even if a person came and threatened the lives of my wife and children, I would tell them the truth but I'd be lying. I'd be lying. And so I'm risking some of you thinking maybe he shouldn't be our pastor because he got up there and said there are times when he would lie. But then you just told the truth. <laughs> or did I? No. <laughs> or did I practice deception for the sake of... Uh, but, but no, it's, I, I think you're right. I think where our minds immediately go on a question like this is not to... Uh, Lying to protect someone else because that's, I mean, we read about it, but maybe the chances of that actually happening to us are, are very slim. Um, most of the time when we're tempted to lie, it's to save our own backside. And that's the truth. <laughs> so I think, I think you're absolutely right. Um, 
So to protect my own skin for the convenience, no, never a good thing. Um, possibilities. Yes, ma'am. That's right. What you would do in that situation. Another one today is the people that are hiding people in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Well, if they come to your door and knock on your door and you're hiding somebody and you tell them a fib or a story or whatever to protect that person, you're actually not protecting yourself. You're putting yourself in more danger. That's right. And see, that's what um, <clears throat> one, of the, uh, one of the commentators, and I'm like, whoa, that is so great, because I, I never would have thought of it. And that's why it's good to read, right? Uh, but one of the commentators I was reading brought something out of the, of the Joshua passage with Rahab. The fact that she said, no, they're not here. They went that away. They just left. Go catch them. If you, if you hurry, you can catch them. And he said, why did she do that? Because she knew if they came in and searched the house, they'd find them. And then she would have been strung up by the crimson rope, you know. Um, and I, I, I didn't see that. And now I can't not see it. I'm like, oh, it's right there. Pay attention, Kevin. But it was, I was like, yeah. You know, so there was like, you know, another layer of, of her deception to get rid of them. Not just to misdirect them so they'd go away, but to get rid of them, get them out of the city, because then the doors shut. So when they went chasing them, it was right at dusk, they shut the doors, so the only people the king knew who were looking for the spies had hightailed it out of the city, and they weren't going to open the gates until the next day. So she had all night to, to deal with them and to, to get them out of the city. And I was like, wow, there it is again. Because, yeah, she put her own life on the line. In addition, uh, you know, to protect them, she put her own life on the line. But that's right. That's what's happening in Afghanistan right now. Amy. I, I went home and did some studying on this after studying. <clears throat> some of the commentaries I was reading, um, she was a prostitute. I mean, so was she. But um, they, some of the commentaries I was reading said that she put her loyalty in the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I kind of, that's where I kind of land that she had, you know, she had declared what was changing about her and, but still had some of those rough edges. But she stood on that faith. And she did. And, yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. Chosen. Oh, and I believe... She was in the lineage of Jesus. That's right. Yeah, and it's that, um, uh, for those of you listening to the recording, um, 
some someone just made the the comment that it was Rahab standing in her new faith and standing in her loyalty to to Yahweh. Um, uh, was the context in which she misdirected the spies, and um, <clears throat> and that um, part of part of the purpose of her being chosen um, was for this path. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, I, I I think that's good because um, oh there was uh, there was a shooting a shooting in in Colorado several years ago where. A lot of people in the church were killed, and the pastor was killed and everything, and that pastor's wife made a, a really profound comment. She said, sometimes God allows what he hates in order, to, to, in order for what he loves to be carried out. And uh, I struggle with that, but also find some, some, some intrigue in that, in that statement, that, hmm, okay. Uh, and I don't know if that's what this was, but you know that that statement has also come to mind. Some other commentators say um, it's really not a question of whether Rahab was right or wrong because she wasn't yet officially part of the covenant community of Israel yet when she did this. I, I, I kind of think that's playing semantics a little, but um, fact of the matter is, if I were Rahab, I probably would have done the same thing. I probably would have, um, but. You know, I'm a long way removed from Rahab. Um, anything else on that? Yes, sir. Because I think through the justification process, I think both of, in both these cases anyway, that the decision maker wasn't confused by the truth of this, the deception. They knew the difference. And so uh -huh. they based what they wanted on the outcome, not necessarily Mm -hmm. Yeah, what, uh, what the person said, um, for those of you on the recording, is that in the justification process for this, uh, the person who was making the decision made the decision with a clear mind. They, they knew what the outcome was going to be, right? Am I getting that right? Okay. Um, even, though, even though in that moment they knew what they were saying may not, may not be true. Is that true, what I said, or did I lie? I'm, kind of, I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. So, so yeah, so there's that. You know, um, I think it's one of those things we, we chew on. This is one of those reasons why, um, this is one of those reasons why I think the virtue of wisdom is so very important in the Christian life because wisdom helps us navigate the, the often gray um, area uh, and, and gray area is not a, not a, not a bad thing. It's not a, it, everything can't be black and white. Um, many things are, but I think much more of life is in, is in those shades of gray uh, where we're trying to navigate <clears throat> and apply, uh, apply the principles of God's word to, to the best way forward. And uh, kind of acting like the tribe of Issachar who knew that, who understood the times and knew what to do. And um, so I think, um, one of the things that I love, love, love about uh, the Methodist tradition um, that I was always jealous of when I was in the Baptist tradition because we didn't have anything like this is the Wesleyan quadrilateral that of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, and taking all those together to help us formulate um, how to live and move and have our being. So um, I'm so glad to be a part of you now because I've been jealous for so long.
So I was coveting, coveting your quadrilateral, and now I can claim it. <laughs> so, all right. Well, what say we talk about women some more? Y'all go, okay, okay. Yeah, I saw you men shaking your heads. No, we don't want to, but I won't say who did it. No, I'm teasing. Okay, let me get over here. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 tonight, and we're going to talk about um, specifically what we talked about last week is we went back to the creation account. Uh, and what, what we're doing in this is <clears throat> kind of building out the why behind why as a pastor, um, I believe in the full inclusion of women in all levels of, of leadership in the church and, uh, and of equal treatment uh, in, the, in the home and of equal, equal place in the home. Um, just as, as one of those questions that was put to me by the search committee, you know, do you endorse the, uh, the ordaining of women to ministry? It was a resounding yes, still is, always will be as long as I'm, uh, as, as long as I'm drawing breath. And, um, um, but in the question from several, uh, several folks at Northside who are asking with the disaffiliation, what are we going to keep doing? What, you know, where are we going from here? What, what values are we going to continue to uphold? What practices are we going to continue? And I just want to kind of give the, the what that, uh, yes, we're going to continue in, in, our, in our track of, of um, ordaining, ordaining women to ministry or bringing on ordained women for other uh, uh, um, opportunities down the road, if, if, should it arise and everything. Um, one, and second, why? What's the biblical precedent for that? And so last week we were in Genesis, and we talked about how the words suitable helper uh, in no way, shape, or form uh, convey a sense of subordination or inferiority, but those two words taken in their correct definition actually point to very much a, a, uh, an equality between men and women from creation onward. And so now we're going to look at um, a passage that's often used to uh, describe the way that men and women are to interact with each other in the home, particularly with uh, wifely submission, okay? So um, this is still under the heading of women are interdependent partners, not codependent subordinates, okay? So it's still under that heading. What about submission? I want you to write this down. When all else fails, remember verse 21. Okay, when all else fails, remember verse 21. Until I preached it, I never heard a sermon on Ephesians 5 and the submission that included verse 21. All my life, every single sermon I heard started with verse 22. And I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're leaving off the crust of the bread, and I like the crust. Okay, don't take the crust off, mom. I like the crust, and I want it toasted and crunchy. So verse 21 is kind of the, the, kind of the heading. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is he is using a format. You know, whenever you use Microsoft Word or, um, or, or whatever, you format the document. And if you're writing 
a letter, you'll do it a certain way. Uh, when I had to write my dissertation, we had to, you know, format it uh, Turabian style. <laughs> it triggered. I was triggered. Turabian. Uh, I'm totally okay. Um, uh, flashbacks of Turabian. And, and so, you know, that determined how we formatted our footnotes and, and all that stuff. And then if it was a quotation of more than four lines, it had to be a block quotation. It had to be indented. Okay? So that's all formatting. You can look at something in its format and tell what kind of writing it is, what kind of literature it is. In the Bible, you, you will have, uh, if you go to Psalms, it's, it's blocked out a certain way. Poetry is laid out in a different way than narrative or prose. Um, prophecy has kind of a rhythm to it. And then there's the book of Revelation, which is its own genre. It's its own thing, apocalyptic. And um, we're going to go verse by verse through Revelation one day here on Wednesday nights. I, 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 I'm predicting it. Yes. Yes, I'm prophesying. It's going to happen. And if it doesn't, then you can throw rocks at me. So um, anyway, I'm sorry. Come back, Kevin. So the way that this is laid out, and we don't quite get it in the biblical text, we have to, um, we have to compare it with other types of documents from the, Greco, from the first century Greco-Roman world that use a similar type of cadence and heading and things like that. It's really nerdy stuff that I won't bore you with, okay? I would tell you, and it would be great for insomnia, but you don't need to fall asleep yet. And, but the format is in something called household codes. And household codes were extremely popular and common in Paul's day as a way for the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire, the, the, the powers that be, to publish what they expected out of families, out of, uh, out of households. And so household codes were kind of the, the thing of the day that told husbands how to be husbands and wives how to be wives and they never even mentioned children because children, they rarely mention wives other than telling wives, do whatever your husband says without any sort of, you know, without any sort of, um, of, of, of filter. Um, they didn't mention children because this was at a time to where if a child was born with any sort of defect, uh, they were taken outside the city and abandoned. Uh, the, the, the early Christian church, um, not only taught adoption, but uh, they would, early Christians would go to these areas where children would be dumped, and um, they would spend time out there waiting for those children to be dropped off, and they would take them in and raise them as their own. Um, and so that was, that's what was happening during, during that day. And, and so um, <clears throat> the family was very, 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 very important to Greco-Roman life, but it was all about the man. A man could have as many wives as he could afford. Those wives had to adopt his religion, uh, his way, uh, and his way was the highway, and that was it. So um, there, was, there was really n never anything directed toward telling the men what to do in a corrective sense. Usually it was telling the women um, how to best please their husband, and it, really didn't mention children, 
but that was the format. Paul in Ephesians 5 begins writing, um, starting in, starting in um, around, in and around verse, uh, verse 20, 21, he starts writing in this household code format. It was something from their culture that they would have been very, very familiar with, and they would have recognized that, hey, this is written like a household code, but this does not sound like any household code we've read, okay? What Paul writes here is actually countercultural, and I mean, countercultural is really an understatement. So let, we'll begin with verse 21. The household code format kind of starts back in verse 14, but really gets in, it kind of gets a running start and becomes formalized uh, around, around verse 20, 21. So always, in verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. I'm reading from the New American Standard. This is the Bible that I study out of. It's a little choppy, a little blocky, um, but it's, 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 it's the one that I got all kind of notes in. So uh, this is kind of my cheat sheet Bible, all right? And this is the Bible my granny got me when I was ordained, so it's my favorite one. Um, so, verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, be subject, or what, what do some of your translations say? Submitting, submitting to one another, okay. Uh, as, yeah, as you are to the Lord, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, submitting to one another in the name of Christ, submitting to one another um, in reverence, yep, in reverence to Christ. Now, what's interesting about the word be subject to or be submissive, it's in what the, in the Greek language is called the middle voice. Okay, the middle voice means it's something you're doing to yourself. Okay, passive voice is being done to you, active voice you're doing it. Middle voice, something you're doing to yourself. There's significance there. Because I am the one doing the subjecting. So I am the one doing the subjecting of myself to one another. Who is the one another and what does that look like? That's what Paul picks up on in verse 22. Wives, to your own husbands. Now, if you have King James or New American Standard, you'll notice the word submit or be subject to is in italics. That's because the word itself, the middle voice word for submission, is not in the Greek text in verse 22. It's borrowed from verse 21, which is fine. There's no scandal, no conspiracy there. But if we were going to read it in a very kind of wooden, literal transliteration, it would be, and be subject or be submissive to one another, submit yourselves to one another is another way it could be translated, in the fear and the reverence of Christ. Wives to your own husbands is to the Lord. But in order to make the point, it's wives, be subject to your own husbands, or wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So it's borrowed from verse 21, but what we have to do is we always go back to 21 to say what is the main idea. The main idea is mutual submissiveness, mutual subjection, subjecting ourselves to one another and doing that ourselves. Here's what it looks like for wives 
Then we'll see what it looks like for husbands. Then we'll see what it looks like for children, which is unheard of, okay? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. It sounds as if Paul is saying that the husband is the boss. If you only look at verse 22, the ultimate authority, and the wife should just obey, but there's a catch. See, the interpretive key to the whole section is verse 21, be subject or submit, is translated from arrange under, arrange under. And there are two ways that the word arrange under is, is used um, in the first century. And, and one is, in, uh, one is in, a, in a arranging of, uh, of, of relatives, an arranging of family. It's very relational. It's very home-based. The other usage is military. Guess which one gets brought up most today? The military one. That's not what Paul meant. Paul wasn't saying, men, give your wives orders. Try that. <laughs> Just try it. It's on that list of things you can do once, right? Um, it's, it's home it's the kind of arranging under in the context and used in the way of a gathering of family, a gathering of chicks under the wings of the mother hen, okay? And so keep that context in mind. So let's, let's, let's go on. Um, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So this headship is a servant-based headship. It's not a military drill instructor type of headship, okay? It's a responsibility where, same thing, in Christ's economy, in Christ's kingdom, uh, the more responsibility, the fewer rights, okay? It's a downward mobility. How may I serve you, babe? How may I serve you, hon? What can I do for you? Um, and what kind of head is Christ over his church? He's a good shepherd. He's a good father. He's a gentle savior. Okay? Um, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Okay, so this is instructing wives to subject themselves to their husbands. It is saying that. But it's the kind of subjection. It's the spirit of the subjection. And it's that the wife isn't the only subjecting one. It's, it's not that women are, women are not the only ones being told to be subjective and submissive here. Husbands are too. Verse 21. So now he speaks to husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. And it's agape. Agape, love. All give and no take. This is a kind of love that is not based on feelings. It's an act of the will. It is choosing to love. And one of the best ways we love is to serve. To arrange ourselves so that the needs of the other person we place ahead of our own. It was absolutely unheard of for men to be told to love their wives in the household codes of first century Greco-Roman culture. 
the men of the church reading this would have said, we're not told what to do. We're not told how to love. And yet in Christ, and this is being read with the women in the room. So while everybody at first is, oh, okay, yeah, Paul's getting it right because he's telling the women how they ought to act. And then the tables turn on the men, and in the hearing of the women and children, husbands are being instructed to practice sacrificial, selfless love for their wives. That was unheard of in this day. Unheard of. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Okay, what do what we, we get into all this stuff? In Paul's day, this is Craig Keener. Craig Keener is a friend of mine, and he is a, a, a very uh, widely published uh, New Testament scholar. And uh, he writes, In Paul's day, many Romans were troubled at the spread of religions from the East, okay? And they feared that those religions would undermine traditional Roman family values. And so the ancients used these household codes to express what their culture regarded as virtuous, in the relational dynamics of, of the home. So Paul borrows that, but he adapts the form. He's saying, I'm introducing a new culture. I'm introducing a new, new culture. So wives, your command to submit is not a command to become a puppet. Paul is not suggesting that your husband make all of your decisions for you. You're still responsible for your own actions and your decisions, and that's why Paul included the qualifying phrase, as unto the Lord. Because ultimately, our allegiance, ultimately our authority is the Lord. So the husband's the head of the wife. We go on. So yes, wives and children are to submit. And it's important that Paul wrote it this way because that would have silenced uh, some objections to the gospel. Because if, if he had been going in going, ah, there doesn't need to be any submission, that would have been a bridge too far, Right? And everyone would have risen up and said, we're not listening to this guy. He's nuts. Um, but for Paul, a truly Christian ethic that was compatible with Jesus' teaching, an example of servanthood, goes beyond just the wife submitting. According to Craig Keener, the male householder is also to submit, according to verse 21. Um, Another commentator says that in Ephesians 5, the final expression of being filled with the Spirit, because uh, earlier it said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, be imitators of God, that the ultimate expression of being filled with the Spirit is in submitting to one another in the Christian home. Okay? So, this, uh, the, the, the talk about um, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself a church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle. He's talking about, okay, in the way that Christ loves his church and is constantly looking out for our well-being, constantly wanting us to be nourished and loved and taken care of and, and never wanting for anything and being protected and being cherished and being honored and ah. Oh, that's how you love your wives, guys. Um, I was watching the, uh, um, it was a motivational speaker. And he was talking, he was 
really wasn't saying much of anything, kind of like I'm doing now, but um, he was but he was passing around this old beat-up violin. He had this old beat-up violin, and he just started, he said, here, pass this around. And then he started talking. And it's going around, it's going around, and the camera is showing people, like, okay, passing it as it got about halfway through. He said, oh, by the way, that violin's a Stradivarius. And there was an audible gasp in the room. <gasps> and... The person holding it obviously didn't know what a Stradivarius was, and they're just like looking around, and, and you know, a person nearby said, don't move it. <laughs> and so he, the person just froze. And he's like, yeah, it's a Stradivarius. And even in that condition, even in that beat-up condition, it's worth tens of thousands of dollars. Well, then the person's like, you know, and I'm thinking, you're not going to hurt it anymore. But still, that is the vibe of how we love one another. Oh, I can't believe what I've got here. I cannot believe this treasure. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. Wow. That's the way Christ loves his church. And that's the way husbands are called to love their wives. Um, to, to see to their well-being and their flourishing in every possible way. And so in verse 28, so husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, and if they do, we want them to talk to someone, you know, uh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church because we're all members of his body. And then in verse 31, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He reminds the, the readers of the, of the creation mandate to leave and to cleave, and that cleaving, again, is unconditional honor and, 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 and love. So, in the household codes, it was customary to call wives and children to be subjective in various ways, but to call the male to subjection toward the wife and children was unheard of. And that's what he eventually does in, ver in, chapter, or in chapter 6, verse 1, when he says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. And then in verse 4, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Unheard of. Unheard of. No one was saying this. And so children are being lifted up and honored. Okay? Um, typically, the codes instructed husbands on how to rule their wives, but Paul instructs men on how to love their wives, not rule them, but love them. And doing this undermined a basic premise of these codes, the male head and absolute authority of the male in the home. Paul's actually undermining that. Although Paul upholds the ideal of wifely submission, he qualifies it by placing it in the context of mutual submission. Okay, and Daniel Reed, another New Testament scholar, writes this. He says, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church by willingly laying down their lives for them. So, last thing on this that N.T. Wright writes, <laughs> he insists that the husband should take as his role model not the typical bossy, bullying male of modern or even ancient stereotypes, but that the husband is to take as his role model Jesus himself. And as soon as taking the lead becomes bullying or arrogant, 
the whole thing collapses and that husband is no longer following Christ. So I hope that helps with the Ephesians 5 shenanigans that often are presented where you know the sermon is, okay, wives, be submissive to your husbands and give an invitation and go home. Um, because there's way, way more to it than that. Husbands are also called to, to, to be subject and submissive in this mutual adoration of one another. Um, next week, we're going to talk about all those problem passages about women being told to marry their rapists. And um, so that, that's crazy. And then finally, we're going to kind of go through um, a bit of a bibliography, if you will, of all the women leaders in the Bible. And there are a lot of them. You'll probably hear some names you never heard before. It'll be really, really cool. Uh, and along with that, we're going to deal with the passages that seem on the surface to sound like they prohibit women from teaching in the church. We're going to find out, yeah, that's what they say, but what do they really mean? All right? So come back next week we'll, for, for more. I'll hang around if you need to chat or talk. Um, but of course, um, you probably want to go to bed, so you'll probably run for the door. Let's pray. <laughs> Thank you so, so much, Lord, for loving us the way you do. Thank you for um, just, thank you for your word and how when we really dig into the meaning behind the meaning, really, it's been there all along. Where it's nothing that's been hidden. It's just uh, sometimes we got to do some digging to get reacquainted with, um, with, with what it's all about. So, um, I pray that you'd reward this time, that uh, you would help us as we continue to dig into your word, keep us curious, keep us inquisitive, keep us teachable. And Lord, may we be men and women <clears throat> who love one another in the sacrificial, selfless way that you love us. And by that, people will know that we are your disciples. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all so much. 